0: Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. This week, the Warner Archive Collection brings you eight great, exciting, fantastic new releases that span the world of film noir, action-adventure, and even animation, Hanna-Barbera style, so let's get the rundown going. We've got six new film noirs that span the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. We have The Mask of Demetrios, We have Fall Guy. We have Dangerous Profession. We have Duffy of San Quentin. We have Loophole and FBI Code 98. Those six film noirs get added to the Warner Archive collection for their DVD premiere this week. But wait, there's more! That's right. We have who? Who's swinging through the trees? Who's coming through the forest? It ain't Tarzan. Who is oh, it? Oh no, it's Bomba the Jungle Boy! Bomba Kamba the Jungle Boy. Was that his last name? Bomba Comba. Yeah. <laughs> Bomba the Jungle Boy starring Johnny Sheffield in six exciting monogram adventures on one thrilling DVD set. Three DVDs, six movies, two movies apiece. Bomba the Jungle Boy making his DVD ab- His bombastic DVD debut? His bombastic DVD debut. And last but certainly not least, the Roman holidays are here again. Yes, as the Hanna-Barbera animated series set in Roman times makes its DVD debut on a double disc set. So let's get the party started with our favorite henchman, Peter DeLore <laughs> and Sydney Greenstreet finally arriving in the Mask of Demetrios, a long
1: awaited Warner Archive gem the Atrius. George, uh, would you consider me wrong in saying perhaps one of the most requested titles in the library?
0: Without question, one of the top ten most requested titles. A film we couldn't bring you until now because of the work that was required in making it look and sound great. And it finally does. And Mr. Laurie. And Mr. and Mr. Greenstreet.
1: The fat man and the little
0: man. Finally took top billing, starring as the leading men, because they were together in Greenstreet's first film, which was The Maltese Falcon, in 1941. They made nine films in which they both appeared together, not necessarily co-starring, but they sort of became an unofficial team. And with the arrival of The Mask of Dimitrios in 1944, the studio did not feel the need to have a romantic
1: lead instead. Their presence alone was enough to guarantee box office and it is to the credit of the people running the studio named of uh, Warner at the time that they were solidly behind these two great character actors carrying films. Now, now Matt and Dan,
0: here's an important question. When we think film noir, we think gumshoes, we think femme fatales, we think dark alleys in, in an American city, but this is not your typical setup and
2: yet it is and at the same is. time so explain i would just like to point out first of all it's world war Two. leading men are off to war right so they've got these character actors together don't be so mean to zachary scott he's very very good actor and
1: he's particularly but very good this, in this is his film.
2: debut i'm just saying no no this wasn't a slight on him but this piercingly is like,
1: handsome zachary scott God. mildred piercingly handsome
2: <laughs> look now please tell me that was a setup because that was just too good anyway a- anyway Matthew, yeah.
1: i'm sorry go no ahead.
2: no it's but, but, i know what you're saying uh, but uh. this is they took their non-american actors but this is all shot on the warner lot it's it's very recognizably warnerville but they made it look european they made it look dark they shot it with all the same techniques because it is an american movie well it's also you know it's gene negalesco who right.
1: who is one of the people that, that very much l- created the charoscuro template for noir now about yeah. nine months ago
0: we celebrated two negalesco films that were part of our noir offerings the conspirators Three Strangers. Three Strangers. So that's actually three. Correct me. Yeah. We, th- those three came out at the same time. Nobody Lives Forever, Three Strangers and The Conspirators. And Laurie and Greenstreet were not only in The Conspirators, but really took center stage along with Geraldine Fitzgerald and Three Strangers. Now, when we put those out, particularly Three Strangers, that's when everybody was clamoring for Demetrios. And Negulesco and his talent – was something that we spoke about at length. For those of you who didn't listen to that podcast, you might want to go back and listen to it's it. But somewhere in your queue. John Neglesco had a background as an artist, and he then got his training as a second unit director at various studios, eventually came to Warner Brothers to direct short subjects. And this was his first feature film oh. at Warner Brothers as a director, Mask of Demetrios, which is really amazing there's not a thing wrong with this film no and then further to that most of the short subjects he directed not all but most of them were musical shorts huh. and fluffy musical shorts so there is not there, an ounce there, of fluff on this there play. is one or two that he made prior to the mask of demetrios one specifically with dean clark that had a criminal theme that kind of give indications of where he was going but What an auspicious feature film debut. And uh, he had, I think, probably four more years at Warner Brothers directing Jane Wyman in Johnny Belinda, for which he won the Academy Award as Best Actress. And then he spent over a decade at 20th Century Fox with an occasional loan out to MGM. But his Warner years and Warner training first in shorts... And then, of course, with these wonderful noirs and other dramas that he directed, really built a solid career that has earned him. He's kind of one of those forgotten directors because he's not thought of like John Huston or Michael Curtiz or the, the really, you know, magnificent Warner directors that people think about. But. I think among cineasts we, and cinephiles, yeah. he fil- has a well-established – The films
2: reputation. that you guys mentioned, there's clearly – his hand is clear in these films and shaping them. I just wanted to touch very briefly. This new print that we have really shows off the photography because the older one that was showing on TV before, uh, I got a chance to look at that and it was – Awful it was it it had
0: color (laughs) and just to clarify we never transfer off of prints per se but we work from what is well no but you're not wrong we work from a fine grain master positive which is a kind of print but it's not a print that's made for projection it's a second generation element made off the camera negative on a fine grain stock that is better for this is what's used to create a dupe negative from which release prints are made. So this is a second generation element, but because of that, it has had an enormous amount of damage and wear. So once again, the wizards at Warner Brothers Motion Picture Imaging have outdone themselves in trying to heal the ravages of time and those ravages were certainly evident on what you
2: watched. It was an an incredible difference because I did look at them back to back. I don't normally get a chance to do that, but in this instance it was very like night and nightier.
1: I just thought briefly, technical background, George could speak to how it occurs that a black and white print on video can appear to have Oh, well, the color moiré patterns yeah. can happen
0: on various well, different levels. This one
2: had like red and blue stripes. Well,
0: that also could have been the disc that you were viewing because you know a screener disc can often introduce color that's well, not, it was it was like not. a cast. It um, had a color cast too. Yeah, but it was. But especially an old analog master, that's one what, inch that's what one I inch analog masters. You know, they looked great on laser disc in the eighties. But you don't want to put them on a DVD in the OOS or the teens, as we're now in the teens, yes. I guess. I guess we since are. Since 2013. Yeah, we got The 12s get... was a teen, too, I guess,
2: right? Well,
1: uh, the tween years. Yeah. Yeah, we're out of the tweens and into we're
0: the teens. We're out teen. of the tweens and into the teens. So with that, The Mask of Demetrios arrives on DVD. And I do want to mention the leading lady of this movie— who became one of the first ladies of television and then became somewhat forgotten. And that is Faye Emerson, who is the femme fatale in Nobody Lives Forever, who snorkels uh, John Garfield (laughs) out of his mouth. I was gonna use another word that
1: (laughs) I can't use. No, I like snorkels. uh, As opposed to
0: smurfles. (laughs) But um, Faye Emerson was married at the time this movie was released to the son of, uh, one of the sons of FDR. Uh, Elliot sure. Roosevelt, and that was her second husband. And uh, she left Hollywood soon after her initial bevy of Warner Brothers appearances and headed to the New York stage and eventually to live television in New York mm-hmm. and became one of the first hostesses of network programming and then eventually married Skitch Henderson the conductor but she's very very beautiful fine actress and a lot of people wonder why she didn't have more of a screen career and she became more involved in New York live television in the 50s right. and then retired but uh,
1: she's terrific in this film
0: everybody's, everybody's terrific, terrific
1: in the this film so the, I mean and, it's, this is just Zachary Scott is great making his debut it's full of great character actors not just Lorian and Greenstreet it's got a great story yeah, let's, based let's just... on a novel by Eric Ambler in which basically a a Dutch mystery writer, 1938 in Istanbul, talks to a police inspector after a body is found dead. It's the notorious criminal Dimitrios Makropoulos. And the mystery writer becomes intrigued by the life of Dimitrios. Uh, obsessed. Obsessed. And sets about... Tracking down the story behind Demetrios, which of course leads him into a dark place, as well as making the acquaintance of the inestimable Mr. Peterson.
0: And so The Dark Place gives us that film noir quality and the Warner Brothers film noir quality that only this creative team could muster. It's a bit
2: 3rd manny because he's, you know, like plot-wise and also the European locales. And then it's got a little bit of Citizen Kane. In terms of lots of
1: flashbacks, with the flashbacks, lots of flashbacks.
0: So let's move from Burbank to Poverty Row as we go to Monogram Pictures in the 1947 film Fall Guy. Speaking
1: of flashbacks, which
0: is based on a
1: novel by Cornell Woolrich, uh, one of the founding scribes of film noir. Yes, and the novel was called Cocaine. Yes, but the, the, short story or no?
0: It was. It, it uh, I believe story. it's a story. Okay. Not a, you
1: know, I want to track down that. And I, I normally I try to do this stuff before the podcast. So full admission, I was not able to get the full background on cocaine because watching the film Fall Guy yeah, and it's trying a, it's to recreate right, he's under the influence of a powerful narcotic, which means he passes out. But it's really. But not. it's the story's called cocaine, so right. I just got to well, read that story. There, <laughs> you know, it,
0: it's yes. probably aspirin. But in, in, in any event, uh, the leading. Man in this film is Clifford Penn, which was actually a moniker that actor Leo Penn, father of Sean Penn and Chris oh. Penn and Michael Penn. Uh, Leo and Penn. You can see it
1: in his face.
0: Yes. as Clifford Penn, he's the leading man in this film. And uh he's terrific. Fall Guy is not related to the Lee Majors television series, just so that you don't get all confused here. And but I was it's a so super noir sing. and is the first. Film produced by a very young man who later went on to produce several
1: Oscar-winning motion pictures, Walter Mirisch. The co-star, co-leading man of Fall Guy, is the great character actor Robert Armstrong. And the only wasn't f- he in a monkey movie? He was a bit of a monkey movie. The only false note about Armstrong's performance in Fall
2: Guy is the film gives his age. As 35. Uh, yeah. <laughs> shocking, by the way. He plays a police detective buddy. Now, just the simple setup. Brother-in-law. Oh, brother-in-law. He was this buddy. It was. Basically, we've got a guy who wakes up after a bender, and he's covered in blood. Uh, yeah, it's a blackout murder movie. I mean, and, and and probably
1: one of the very first of with this setup, if with, not the first. Without question. Yeah. In, in and, a situation
0: not of his own making, so that makes it very Hitchcockian. You know,
2: and, and when we get into these poverty row noirs... These setups are what drive the whole movie. Everything is very simple. Everything is, you know, very few sets. But the the inherent drama here is what Wakes up, right. He wakes up, bloody knife covered in blood, picked up by the police,
1: escapes, tries to recreate what happened. And and, and then then we recreate what happened in segments, which includes waking up and finding a body in a closet. And what's important about this film is this is
0: not a film that's been on television in decades. This is a film that's been significantly unavailable and out of view legitimately. And then it was shown in a film festival last year where Walter Mirisch appeared introducing the movie, which was really quite wonderful for him. And uh, it was a little throwaway movie in his mind, but in our mind, it's a big, interesting monogram noir. How can you resist it? So Fall Guy is movie number two. Staying
2: in the 1940s, we move on to RKO. Bale Bondsman, probably now that we know Bale Bondsman a little better in the future, who knew that Bale Bondsman could get uh, so messed up?
1: I feel the need to mention that the next four movies all share a certain storytelling characteristic, which is the voice of God narrator. yes. Starting with A Dangerous Profession.
2: Now that, that George is Raft,
1: Three men in a room talking about films. What has gone awry? So that, you've got George Raft, Pat O'Brien, and as a leading lady, the lovely Ella Raines. And this narrator is none other than Jim Backus.
2: I didn't realize he was also he, the narrator. He, yeah,
1: because the detective is telling the story of his friend, the bail bondsman. I loved Dangerous Profession.
0: Dangerous Profession is a terrific movie. And it's directed by Ted Tetzlaff, who directed The Window...
2: Which is one of our best-selling noir. Another noirs. terrific
1: film and Absolutely. another terrific and, noir.
2: And Jim Back is here, if you're only familiar with him, from Gilligan's Island.
1: And shame on you if that's true.
2: But I suspect that there are a lot of people—he's It's he's not doing Thurston Howell here. He's a tough guy.
1: Nor is it the Jim Backus that you know from Rebel Without a Cause. Or this the Jim is, Backus that you know from Mr. Magoo. Needless to say, Jim Backus had a great career. So will you back us up
0: and tell us more <laughs> about A Dangerous Profession, please?
2: The methodology in this is that the voiceover comes and tells you what a bail bondsman is. Oh, so we get the background, was. what they do. Yeah. It's We don't have to worry about we, it. we get a lot of lovely exposition from voiceover as opposed to just They're right color. next door yes. to the police station. You've seen them before. But what goes on inside? Because he has given his bond. So
0: we would go from bail to jail as we go to <laughs> San Quentin, the don't. prison— A film that began life as the San Quentin story, but ended up getting released as Duffy of San Quentin. And this film stars Paul Kelly as Duffy of San Quentin and Lewis Hayward, who is the first saint in the RKO Saint movies from the Saint in New York, which we have yet to
1: release. And uh, in a supporting role, Maureen O'Sullivan. Very much so. Watching Duffy of San Quentin, what really struck me is how far we've come yes. as a society that, yep. in that when's the last time you saw a prison reform film a film which is about the rehabilitation and the redemption of prisoners we have just like as a society De- turned devil's, our back devil's island yeah i mean we have just turned our back on actually thinking of people in jail as human beings worthy of help well, Duffy you San obviously
0: haven't watched Lockup on, on MSNBC on the weekend.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, folks. No, but this was – Duffy is, was, no. a yeah, yeah, Quentin, this was a real prison warden of San Quentin, a real prison
1: reformer. But what I thought was really interesting was that the film starts. You're like, oh, I'm going to settle in for a prison reform biopic. But but layered within Duffy of San Quentin is a very compelling noir romance. And that's the way
0: they changed the title from the San Quentin story uh, at the last minute to Duffy of San Quentin because they wanted to position it more about – his perspective. And also, there had been a film with Bogart in 1937, San Quentin, which Warner Home Videos released. We also have a 1947 RKO film called San Quentin. So I think they really wanted to differentiate it from San Quentin's past, and they did a really good job of it. This was an independently produced movie, and uh, Walter Doniger is the director, and he later went on to be very prolific on television, directed a lot of Cheyenne episodes. And this was an, actually an early film of his, and I think it's very effective. Another totally forgotten film that we've resurrected for its home video premiere.
1: And another film was like an absolutely like terrific cast, top to bottom. like yep. Like the supporting players – You know, uh, the Louis Hayward's character, Romeo, he's got three buddies. All three of those actors will be familiar to anyone who's watched movies or television. But they're great. Uh, You know, Joe Turkle and Joel Fuellen. And then, of course, uh, in the third act, we have the prosecutor, Wynant, come in, played by George McCready, who's fantastic. And also, I think you'll appreciate this, Matt. I was very surprised in the third act, antagonist literally comes out of nowhere, and yet he doesn't.
2: No, no, he's yeah, he's set up. Yeah. But uh it's this is an epic. Yeah. It, even though it doesn't it doesn't have a long running time, but, but it's got the big three, beats in the this. three yeah. separate beats. Yeah. And it starts off about like prison reform, but it really gets into Romeo's story about becoming a male nurse and the female nurse who comes in who's lonely and connects. And that's the heart of it and that he really truly is something that he isn't if, i'm not spoiling I, I
1: i don't want to get too pretentious but if you're familiar with the psychoanalytic techniques of carl jung there's a lot going on in this film uh-huh. and for the young at heart we move on to the
0: next <laughs> oh film. well that was terrible which I like is it loophole and this is uh directed by harold schuster who started his career at fox directing jane withers kitty movies And uh, this is about as far away from that as you can get. And I love this film. This is a crisp caper noir with Barry Sullivan giving a terrific performance. Dorothy Malone, very young Dorothy Malone, and one of the foremost noir heroes of noir devotees, Charles McGraw. Who is so good at this? He's so
2: good, and he just (laughs) won't give back (laughs) all of (laughs) it. Now, let's just say that the voiceover here talks about the exciting world of being a bank teller.
1: And being an innocent man whose life can go awry. But... A simple accusation, and it all goes away.
2: And the premise of this (sighs) is just very simple, and it's what drives the whole film.
1: Bank examiners, the root of the industry. Without a bank examiner, you cannot trust your deposit. I, Barry never, Sullivan is a bank teller who is falsely accused
0: of having lost $50,000 of his... Teller money. Teller money. I think caves. that's what... i sure tell- there's a word for it, but... Uh, He's obviously innocent and he's out to prove his innocent and he meets some very shady characters along the way as well as some who believe him and who are supportive. Cause, cause Including he,
1: a young actor in a very small part in this film who we're going to see shortly thereafter in FBI Code 98. Well,
2: mm-hmm. the, the key here is that the character makes a very simple error in that when – He doesn't pay attention. He's not paying attention and he blames himself and he leaves work instead of reporting – the money is gone, and that one tiny thing just casts a spell of guilt over him. And the the moral of the story is: when something bad happens at work, tell, tell. your supervisor, tell your boss, right away. don't tell your wife. Yeah. And, that, George, by the way, I what? forgot to tell you, I've walked away accidentally He with lost the reels 000. of greed. It was yeah. him. Oh. I, I was
0: like, where'd they go? But you see, there was mismark because it was actually greedy with Michael J. Fox. <laughs> oh, no, no,
2: no, no. We wanted to fool you. I thought it was the band so, Creed. As Barry <laughs> Sullivan <laughs> tries to
1: put his life back together, Charles McGraw plays the insurance agent determined to put his life Asunder. He wants to make sure that his company doesn't have to pay
0: out the fifty grand, and he ruins he's a, every attempt
1: Barry Sullivan makes great to villain. get his life. He's great because he's he is the true antagonist because he's not the bad guy in no, the story. No, the bad guy in the story is a platinum blonde, the, but man, the, he is relentless. The bad people in this—how everybody's got their motives and they're At, all believable. Well,
0: who I felt the worst for was the dog because, oh, when, you know, poor, the, poor. I worried that the
1: dog wouldn't Not be on a leash. with them in that apartment. I could tell they were yeah. living in Glendale. You people still drove fast in Glendale. And put your dog on a leash, Barry Speaking Sullivan. Of which there are uh, – every Great
0: Noir should have good location footage yeah. in Los Angeles if it's supposed to take place in Los Angeles, and this one does.
2: This one fantastic. And there's some
0: great – Oxford Street particularly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then when, when, the when they
1: go above Point Zuma –
0: Oh. that, that oh, yeah, house
1: on the beach oh, they, even,
2: they even say they're there at Zuma Beach yeah. you know. and if they had opened up a glowing briefcase at the end
1: uh, that's, yes that's where I was going and you got there
2: <laughs> I beat you <laughs> the last film
1: in, in our noir speaking of glowing
2: briefcases
0: is FBI Code 98 directed by Leslie H. Martinson who also directed the epic cinema version of the Batman television series oh. Which is the way that I know his name. But he also directed many, many Warner Brothers television episodes, 77 Sunset Strip particularly. But he was a famous Warner Brothers director and directed one of our best-selling feature films, PT-109. FBI Code
1: 98. If what I've heard about it is correct, and George, you can correct me if it's not, 1962 TV pilot? It was sort of a, if you will, you were talking last in our last podcast about
0: backdoor pilots. Right. This was supposed to serve as a pilot for the FBI television series, and oh. this was really before the TV movie had taken hold. So they really didn't know if they were going to sell it to TV or if it was going to be a pilot or an extended pilot. They ended up going out theatrically with it, and Jack Kelly, who played Bart Maverick, uh, you know, the younger brother in the Maverick TV series, and who was, I believe, the first uh, host of one of the big game shows on TV later on, Sale of the Century or something like that. Anyway, Jack Kelly is the prototype basically for Lou Erskine in the FBI television series later on the similarities between the way this is set up and the FBI television series kind of end there. This movie is a little a- bit Except more, for William Reynolds. Well, that, and of course, William Reynolds joined the FBI <laughs> later yeah. on.
1: Yes, The, the so voiceover was-, was we, we, uh, see, but the, we see where William Reynolds character was right before he right. joined fbi well he
2: went to the gallon he went to the gallon
1: served time at the san francisco office and then joined yep. erskine in washington now, I, th-
2: I thought the setup here because when it's like explained like tv it makes a little more sense because on the tv shows they spend the opening act on the victims or the crime itself and this one starts out with what, what i would like to call the missile men because it's like mad men but with missiles and i loved three men from a garage to importance in national security people with
1: luxury apartments and i love the fact that they really emphasized that these were computer guys who got their start in in the garage which became a cliche very soon thereafter and yet such an important cliche because it literally shaped our society but this is like the very beginnings of that story of Young men, computers, electronics professors in their garage inventing something that the government will only pay for. And, and they
2: have – Because uh, there wasn't
1: any private computing at the time.
2: People. No. And they have strange interpersonal relationships and that – They have marvelous suits, really cool yeah. apartments, not but- necessarily faithful – What happens is – and this is what the FBI people start telling you is that they're very important to national defense and that they're all – Because of missile guidance and we're trying to go to the moon, people. Right. We used to try to do
1: things like that.
2: And they were all in the same plane at the same time. Speaking of the glowing briefcase. And in the plane, somebody had switched out their handbag for a handbag with a bomb. Now, this film was was made uh, in
0: black and white as opposed to the FBI television series, which was in, in, in color. color. <laughs> uh, but this film was also widescreen, and yes. it's very rarely seen. So this new master really shows off the widescreen aspect ratio in impeccable quality. And... Film music enthusiasts will note that Max Steiner scored the film, and yet it was all created from house music, meaning pieces that Max Steiner had written for other Warner Brothers films that were cobbled together. We had another film in January that we released, Code 2, which had MGM stock music in it. This is all Warner Brothers stock music written by Steiner and a couple of other cues by other people, but it gives it that big budget feel. And that's what's so cool about the film is you don't feel like you're watching a low-budget movie. It's also the voice of
1: William Woodson. That's true. The FBI Forensic Laboratory. Every article of fiber ever made in the United States is cataloged here. Every record ever
0: recorded (laughs) in history. (laughs) So these six films, now available on DVD for the very first time, we're ever-increasing our film noir selection for your film noir collection, and there will be more coming in the year to follow. But now, welcome to the jungle. Welcome to the jungle indeed, Matt, as we welcome Bamba the Jungle Boy to the Warner Archive Collection with the first six of his 12 monogram and allied artists action adventure epics directed by the inestimable Ford Beebe. You laugh. I thought it was BB Well, it could be BB okay. I don't know how to pronounce his name. B-E-E-B-E. But he's been a hero of mine
1: since I was a kid because he directed Flash Gordon, Conquers the Universe, and yes. Buck Rogers. Yes. And this film is – well, these films, they didn't actually go to exteriors to what, the third oh. or the fourth film? Uh, oh, Hidden boy. Hidden City, fourth yes. film. Fourth film. These films are miracles of economy. And yes. Walter Mirisch. Who
0: produced Fall Guy, produced these Bomba films, and in his recently published autobiography, he goes into his tenure at Monogram and Allied Artists at Length and talks about making the Bomba movies and how it really built his
1: career. Well, he's clearly a genius because all you have to do is watch the first two of these films and note how they're constructed and how it works. But briefly, let's give some quick background on to Bomba the Jungle Boy. Dan, please
0: tell us about the character himself and where did he come
1: from? Bomba the Jungle Boy was a creation of the infamous or famous Stratemeyer Syndicate who brought you such immortal characters as the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Tom Swift. And as Edgar Rice Burroughs' immortal creation, Tarzan was capturing international imagination, Stratemeyer Syndicate said, hey, we need a boy jungle king. And they came up with Bomba. And how better to cast
0: a movie version than with Johnny Sheffield, who had played boy to Johnny Weissmuller's Tarzan in the MGM and RKO iterations of the Tarzan
1: series on screen. I think I talk like him for rest of podcast, Dan. Speaking of Johnny Sheffield and the MGM Tarzans, what's really sort of refreshing and fun about the Bomba films is even though this is a 1950s Eisenhower era America there is a bit of that free spirited sly on un- tundra oh, yeah. sexiness okay. we yeah. all know why the girls want to hang around Bomba and we all we also know why Bomba has no intention of going to civilization and the first no. girl is Peggy Ann Garner who had been a child star at 20th Century Fox
0: She was in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, most memorably other films like Knob Hill. But her Fox career ended as she grew up and she I think she's like 16 or 17 in this movie in in real life in her chronology. And,
2: And makes an appearance in a loincloth. Yes, she does. A, a very well-tailored leopard. As, as, are,
0: as are Mr. Sheffields as yes. well. Yeah, but, And we
1: all know why she's in no hurry to get back to her father. No. Oh, nor are any of the other, other young yes. ladies.
0: Because <laughs> what struck me is the plots of these films are almost identical. There's very little change from film to film, but the people are engaging. The stories are engaging. And what's remarkable about these, we have six movies on three discs – As opposed to if you look at series like The Bowery Boys where we could put three movies on a disc because on a dual-layer DVD 9, you can't put three 80-minute or 75-minute movies without having really poor quality. And we want to deliver you a fine bitrate. And that's what differentiates Bamba from Bowery Boys or Johnny Mac Brown or some of the other B-pictures is that these films are longer. But why are they longer? Stock
1: footage. There you go. They're loaded with stock footage. We've all seen the hey look, there's a stock footage scene in tons and tons of poverty robe movies. But the stock footage is so expertly sewn into these films. Well, the, yes, we know it's stock footage, but it really the, the first film specifically yeah. though they're, well, on they're the there to, get stock, to footage. get
2: stock footage.
1: But I mean it's, it's just all a journey to get stock footage. I mean it's almost as if They look at the bank of stock footage they have and then write the screenplay around the stock Mm -hmm. footage. Let's tell the the folks at home who are listening to this podcast, what are the six Bomba films? Bomba the Jungle Boy from 1949, uh, guest starring Peggy Ann Garner, as we said. Bomba on Panther Island from 1949, also with Eileen Roberts. The Lost Volcano from 1950 with the great Donald Woods. Hidden City from 1950 with uh, Paul Guilfoyle. And then Lion Hunters. Lion Hunters Hunters Hunters. from 1951 with N.B. Todd. And last but not least, Elephant Stampede. 1951 as well. Co-starring elephants. Yeah, there's Bamba who was raised by a cranky naturalist in the jungle and he's a jungle boy, and he likes his jungle friends. And then there's a commissioner of the jungle, which is a great yes. job to get appointed to, commissioner of the jungle, who yeah. Bamba helps out. And then there's people that accidentally come into the jungle. And unlike Tarzan's great escarpment, Bamba lives in the Great Rift.
0: Not unlike the Barry Boys, the Bamba films have been somewhat of a...
1: Staple here and there on television for decades. In the 60s on WGN, Fred Silverman, before he became Fred Silverman, cut them into a show called Zimbamba, which is why a lot of people think that Bamba was a TV show, but it was actually a recut of these films.
0: But these films are the original theatrical versions uncut, and more importantly, we have created new masters. From the best existing 35mm film elements, which have seen their share of wear, as the Barry Boys have, thanks to the various iterations as people chopped and re-chopped them for television. We've put them back together to the best of our ability, and you're going to see a better-looking bomba than you've ever
1: seen before. Should,
2: should we go over some of the creatures he fights? Elephants,
1: pythons,
2: well, Panther volcanoes. Island. Yeah, well, the volcano is is a fantastic Being accused
1: one. of being imaginary. Now, <laughs> yes, guys, imaginary there are
0: six friend. movies in this set, but there are six But wait, more. there's more
1: to come. Oh, my. So, will there be a volume two?
2: I would hope so, George. I, well, I insist on it.
0: Well, your mm-hmm. insistence and your hopes will be met as we bring volume two to the whack audience later
2: this year. Now, let me just say that at the end of every Bamba film they all go Bamba Bamba you're awesome why don't you stay with us why don't you come back to civilization and he always turns at them waves his hand and goes off and I almost expect the lonely man theme from The Incredible Hulk ah no
1: because so, uh, no, uh, yeah see for me it's his but Commissioner not, Gordon Batman moment They're I like, just think he's, one more thing Batman oh he did it again it's like Bamba now let's go to civilization and then like, he huck fins it out to the yeah, wilderness he goes, he
2: goes but he's Yeah, I guess it's not. He knows
1: better. He's a wise savage. So now we're going to go from
0: the wilds of the jungle to the really wild times of Rome and Hanna-Barbera's animated comedic laugh fest, The Roman Holidays.
1: You have the Flintstones. Yes. Which is prehistory. And then you we have, have the Jetsons. Jetsons, which is future history. But some people might not remember that we have the Roman Holidays, which is history history.
0: Which also mm. has a landlord named Mr. Evictus. Played by who? Dante Louise. Oh, yes. Making his animation voicing yes. debut.
2: This one is, I mean, it's very simple to pitch because you just say, hey, remember the Flintstones? Okay. But with Rome. But stuff. with
1: Rome. And Dino is now a lion because who doesn't want a lion as a house
2: pet? And this one, it you can't help but watch it and think of the Flintstones at the same time because the gags are very similar. This was created later in time. And so it was dealing with later countercultural issues. And let's just say that they kept talking about bell bottom togas, which in my head... There's a lot
1: of groovy happenings in the Roman holidays. Yeah.
2: It's pretty groovy. I'm surprised
1: they didn't have a musical number at the end in, with in, their own band. Including including a character named Groovia. Groovia. Whose father was played by, did you notice? Did no. you notice the voice? No. Harold Peary. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh
2: the
0: voice the voice of Augustus Gus, the the head of the household is Dave Willick. Was a familiar character actor you wouldn't necessarily know by name, but you definitely you recognize, recognize his voice. voice. Yeah. But his voice is very similar to that of George O'Hanlon, yeah. who did yes. the voice of George Jetson. Yes, it,
1: and I think they were actually going.
2: going for it, a yeah. it felt. Yeah, it
1: felt that way. George Jetson had, had Sprocket, and right. you know, and Fred had Mister Slake. Yeah, but the conflict for for Gus is his landlord, Mister Evictus. It's not the same power relationship.
2: No, it's it's not, and and he runs a lodge, right? right. Like he's he, it's Roman Holiday. They're they're at a holiday But it's a, it's,
1: it's an it's an
2: insula. It, I didn't one hundred percent understand that because in the opening but, credits, I thought that they were running a hotel. Well, it, well, it's an it's an apartment building. Right. I should point out that one of
1: the voice actors in this film uh-huh. is someone that is very, very important to Matthew, and I don't know if you picked up on it, that the character of Precocia, Gus's daughter, uh-huh. was voiced by Pamela Furden. Wow! And just for that, Ref- we're, we're all gonna say Shazam fame. We're yeah. all gonna say Beckett.
0: Beckett. She was actually the the Lucy Van Pelt voice in a winning mm-hmm. named Charlie Brown. Uh, and appeared on every sitcom known to mankind and, in the early 70s. And, but Shazam is why she has whack favoritism in our hallowed portals. Because of so, that. Butler a, does the voice of the lion, by the way. Just in case for you, you, you Dawes all the All the fine talents of Hanna-Barbera are in full display. And this is a two-disc set uh, with the complete series now available on DVD for the first time. And it wouldn't be a Warner Archive Collection podcast of note unless there was a note from you to these gentlemen, letting them know, letting all of us know what your thoughts are. And therefore, we have not one, not two, not three, but four fantastic communiques of great import to share with you at this time. So, oh, here with they that, come.
2: The mailman was just here. Oh my goodness! Here, I'm gonna listen, it. I'm opening lovable, the mail truly. sack.
1: Oh, Here they come kind on of a double decker bus, and those wow. are my receipts. I'm gonna put yeah, in those dead one, dead two, three, four. What could it be? Why, why? It's not four, it's five. There's an extra letter in there. Well, should the we, choice for fun is should five. Should we
2: read some of these next time? I
1: think we should read them all now. Let's go. All
2: right, let's let's do go. It.
0: Let's do it. Open the envelope. No, no wonder U. why
2: we were rushing through Roman Holiday. This one is on a piece of A4 Dear Wack I take Crayola's in hand to say I am a long time listener of the podcast and a first time writer I'm one of a few but dedicated Albert Lewin enthusiast is that Lewin yes mm-hmm. okay I'm proud owner of Sadia from Wack along with the picture of Dorian Gray Private Affairs of Bellamy appears to be available from WB in France is there any chance we will get a Region 1 release on either WAC or Warner Brothers proper? We have no rights. Sorry. Thanks for your time and keep up the yeah. good fight. David in Philadelphia. Thank you, David. All right, next we've got Travis in Texas. Travis used tape of some kind to keep this shut, so it's difficult for me to open. Thanks, Travis. Dan's going to open that one while I open another one from Jimmy in Alabama. All right. We'll get back to that one. Thank you, Dan. Oh, my God. This one is full-on crayon in green. Crayon is the theme because the one I just
1: opened is crayon as well. And because I opened it,
0: I'll read it 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 it. And don't forget, there
1: are 64 brilliant
2: colors in that big Benny and Smith box. So... I am writing you this letter <laughs> in in answer to your many requests and my attempt at impersonating a resident of a funny farm. Well, his handwriting's too good.
1: Yeah, much too good.
2: First, thanks for continuing to release Alice. Just got season three in the mail.
1: You are welcome.
2: First request for her release is the lost movie Marilyn Miller made. His Majesty's love. The last love. movie. Oh yeah, it looks like I see I'm reading it directly, right. but you're correct. You released Sonny and Sally, which I have. Do you have this one too?
0: Yes, we do. And new film elements are being made for preservation. And when they are completed, there will be a new master. The new master will become a Warner Archive release. And all will be right with the world. So thank you very much for your
2: crayon But wait, there's more. Also, are you releasing the spinoff of Dukes of Hazard, Enos?
0: Now, the answer is we hope yes. We're not sure if we can get all of our... Ducks in line to make that happen, but we're looking into it. But anybody who loves Marilyn Miller and Enos is a true yeah. whack person. That I and was we j- salute
2: j- to you. Yes, very. Yes. We gotta send him a,
1: a junior whacker badge. Thank you,
2: Jimmy, from
1: Saraland, Alabama. Thank you, Jimmy. I have a letter from Travis from Whitesboro, Texas, and it includes a crayon card that uh. says. Two Warner Archive crew, and I'm opening it oh up. Oh, my God. Oh, my Lord. Their caricatures are some of our favorite actors. Okay, it's we're going to have to take it's a picture. A, it's a fourth anniversary no, birthday card.
0: drew a picture of
1: Alan Jenkins. Alan Jenkins in the center. Specifically for you, Dan. Travis, uh, you've got Edward Robinson, Betty Davis, Humphrey Bogart, Jimmy Cagney, and in the center, in the center, Alan Jenkins. This is the best birthday and card let us ever. also say... That this
0: artwork is very impressive. Yes. Can,
2: we so
1: are gonna
0: scan can, this Travis, and put this up
2: done, with your permission, Travis. Yes, yes. Worthy of her can show. Can I just say that I saw an article recently that said, and with cult uh like cult favorite? The cult Holland favorite David, Alan Jenkins. I think that's only you, Dan. Yeah, I know. He's created I, I've, the
1: cult. Yes, and it's well overdue. As, and here's as these officers <laughs> officer dribbles yeah. in. <laughs> and here is Travis's missive. In pen, but it's okay because he did that in crayon. And he put it on
0: loose leaf paper, so there's a cool factor to that also.
1: Warner Archive podcast. Hey, guys, just wanted to drop another note to share this card I made commemorating Wax's fourth birthday. Hope you get a kick out of it. We sure did. These are all the stars I'd like to see more of, especially... Alan Jenkins Ah, and then there's a smiley face Dan's
2: heart is melting
1: anywhere here's to many more years of success to the Warner Archive I think you guys have the luckiest jobs in the world Travis P.S. Warner Archive
2: Instant is fantastic well we might have a little bit more to say to that later on if we get through these letters yeah if we get through them okay here's one from Randy with an I in Phoenix Arizona with a Z Another one on loose leaf paper, but this one was torn from a spiral notebook. Dear Warner Archive employees, happy birthday! I just wanted to say happy birthday and thank you for all the hard work restoring the greatest DVDs ever. I always hoped there would be a collection of Robert Penchley shorts, Ripley shorts, and so much more. And now I own them. I hope others write because you need to know how much Warner Archive is loved and appreciated. If I lived near Burbank, I'd beg for a job, or at least Bring you guys a cake. Oh, we would eat that cake. If you move, you are allowed to do that. I wish you well, and a very profitable twenty thirteen. Thank you, Randy. P.S. No need to reply. Just no wanted wanted you guys to know you were appreciated. Thanks.
0: That is very nice indeed.
2: All right, and then this is number five, right? Yeah. Another one in crayon. Wow, we've hit. This is like I a think this is a first. repeat. Oh, hey again. Yep. Oh, this is this is also from Jimmy. Wow. Hey again. I'm glad Warner Archive has started releasing titles on Blu-ray, especially Gypsy with Rosalind Russell. Hope more in the works. An interesting bit of trivia about Gypsy was that before the decision was made to dub Rosalind Russell's vocals, she did attempt her own singing. Ethel Merman, who was mad that she had not been cast in the film, evidently kept this copy of Russell's vocals as a strange and somewhat vengeful consolation prize. Thanks again, Jimmy. From Saraland, Alabama. Well, I don't know
0: if the story about Ethel Merman is true or apocryphal. Probably is the latter, and we thank you for that letter, by the way. Oh yeah. But Rosalind Russell did pre-record all of her vocals for the film, and when I was producing the soundtrack CD that was released in two thousand four, we actually released some of her tracks. I went through all of them, but we released some of them on. The album, because it's Lisa Kirk who did the vocals for most of Russell singing in the film. Lisa Kirk uh, was a Broadway performer, a nightclub performer. And Russell's own voice is heard in the song Mr. Goldstone. And part of Rose's turn... But the rest is Lisa Kirk. That's pretty well known and established. But for the soundtrack album, we actually included some of Miss Russell's own recordings for the world to hear. So whether or not they were in Ethel Merman's Closet, I don't know. But that soundtrack CD is out there. If you
2: folks are interested, go get it. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. And now I just wanted to to address Warner Archive Instant just a little bit. And just say that the service uh, – anybody basically who's listening to this podcast is somebody who's a fan of film. And the way that this instant service is working out is that if you, it's a very uh, convenient way for you to see a whole bunch of films in a variety of formats that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise be able to see at all in, in some of the HD cases. Is that right, George?
0: Yes, there are a lot of films on Warner Archive Instant that are streaming in high definition that have not been available in true high definition form in any format or any broadcast. There have been some upconverted SD television airings and whatnot, but this is true HD 1080p. And you'll also get to see some films that have never been released on DVD or even on home video and television episodes like 77 Sunset Strip. And Hawaiian I," And even Jericho. So we really welcome you to try out our new streaming service. Go to
2: instant.warnerarchive.com. And just as time goes on, we're going to be talking a little bit more about it.
1: Yes, we'll be layering in shout-outs to various things like our showcase thing. Mm -hmm, For instance, mm -hmm. there's one of the showcases, which are sort of like a a program film festival for your living room, is Incendiary Cinema, which has one of my favorite films, which is Storm Warning, which all I need to tell you people is it's Ronald Reagan versus the Ku Klux Klan and Doris Day's in it. And it really is a terrific film.
0: Let's also remind people that – the Warner Archive Instant streaming service is available on the web, right. and also streaming is HD Roku. Roku only right Roku now. Roku only right now, but we will be adding other apps and other devices for streaming purposes as the service grows. And as the service grows, so will our releases of DVDs and Blu-rays. Yeah, Our commitment to releases on disc is ever-growing, ever-popular, ever, growing, ever, popular, ever vibrant and this new business just adds to our cachet it's
2: it's like you know because if you're a disk buyer this is a supplemental service for you
1: so let's just shout out some URLs quickly for the disks you can go to shop.WarnerArchive.com yes for Warner Archive instant you can go to instant.WarnerArchive.com go you could f- just go to Warner archive Warner archive.com to be our buddies on Facebook uh, Facebook slash Warner archive to be our friends on Twitter Handle at Warner Archive yes. and find us on Tumblr.
2: warnerarchive.tumblr.com So that's and a lot of URLs. Most
0: importantly, to keep this podcast as exciting as it possibly can be, we oh, want yeah. even more letters. Yes. So please share with us, Matthew Patterson, the address to which people can send a stamped envelope with their letter. Please send your letters to Warner
2: Archive Collection, B160 8, 3400, Riverside Drive, burbank california 91522
0: we hope you've enjoyed our new releases this week six new film noir releases Bomba the jungle boy collection volume one and the roman holidays the complete animated series all now available at shop.warnerarchive.com and we thank you for listening to this podcast and hope you'll tune in for the next one i am george feltonstein i'm hacky patterson me bomba Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in for the next Warner Archive Collection podcast.